Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from 343 Industries' Kiki Wolfkill about the Paramount Plus TV series spin-off of the Halo sci-fi video game franchise now prepping for season two. Cineflix Media's Peter Emerson on how the Canada-headquartered company is broadening its scripted lineup, and My Daughter's Killer exec producer James Rogan on the new Netflix true crime documentary. It's more than two decades since seminal Xbox sci-fi first-person shooter game Halo splashed onto the scene, building up a worldwide following and establishing itself firmly as a global franchise. Discussions between Xbox game studio subsidiary 343 Industries, Steven Spielberg's Amblin Television and Showtime Networks about a TV spin-off began ten years ago, and in March this year, Halo the series debuted on streaming service Paramount+. Kiki Wolfkill, head of transmedia and entertainment at 343 Industries, spoke to Michael Pickard about the show's development, the challenges of translating video games to television, and the preparations underway for a second season. I'm Kiki Wolfkill. Uh, I'm the head of transmedia and entertainment for 343 Industries, which is the Xbox studio that uh, runs the Halo franchise. Uh, I'm also executive producer on uh, the Halo television series with with Paramount Plus. Right. Well, thank you for joining us, Kiki. I mean, um, transmedia is a, is a term that's been around the TV industry quite a while. Um, I mean, what what tell us a bit about, I guess, your job and and how you're looking to bring your IP or your projects um, beyond you know video games. Yeah, I mean, I I think one of the things I'm super happy about is, you know, transmedia went from kind of a buzzword, I would say, probably 10 years ago into uh, a a legitimate form of media expression. And uh, how we look at it from a Halo perspective, and I I think is is generally embraced is, you know, it's a way for us to tell stories uh, in different mediums in in its simplest form. And, you know, in my role as the head of transmedia and entertainment, I really look at you know we have a we have a 20 plus year old ip now a really mature ip that's very much centered around our video game we have a number of games mostly centered around uh what is now halo infinite and layered underneath 20 years of games is a universe and lore and characters and a mythology and history and so how do we look at ways of giving people different entry points into the universe and also how do we look at ways of bringing in new audiences into the universe and really introducing them to uh, sort of the mythos behind Halo and give them different ways to experience our, our stories. Can you tell us some of the ways you've you've looked to do that over the last 20 years, I guess, before we get to the TV show? How have how yeah. have expanded the Halo universe? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we look at it from a couple, couple different perspectives. Like first is when we have a story we want to tell, where is the best place to tell it? And by that, it's not just audience, but also what is the best medium. You know, we have graphic novels over the course of the last 20 years. We've had over 12 books on the New York Times bestseller list. We have comic series. We have a very sort of a thriving consumer products program, which is really about how do we express our universe through collectibles and toys and even sort of lifestyle items, because part of it is to allow our fans to express their fandom, right? And what are the things they love and how do they have a piece of Halo that they can have on 
on their desk or in their home. We've done uh, Halo Legends was an anime anthology. And what was super interesting about and Halo Legends and, and not dissimilar to the television series is it let us bring different creative voices into the universe and sort of be able to keep their voice and keep sort of what makes them sort of special and unique as creatives, but have them tell stories in our universe, you know, versus the game experiences, which are very much told from our own studio perspective. We've done some live action digital shorts, sort of web series, but for sure the television series is is probably the biggest sort of uh, transmedia effort that we've embarked on as proven by, you know, the amount of time it took us to get here. <laughs> but it is, it is about expressing Halo and I think maybe differently from some of our other transmedia properties where it was maybe about telling a backstory or connecting experiences through story. You know, maybe it's bridging, you know, from one game to the next. With the television series, it was really meant to be a way of expressing Halo and the Halo stories in a different way. And so outside of what we call core canon, and we we call the Halo Silver timeline, it's very true to sort of the core belief systems of Halo and who the characters are and some of the sort of bigger historical moments of Halo, but really looking at how do we optimize it for the medium, for television and television storytelling. At the same time, how do we take advantage of having, you know, eight or nine hours of very character-focused drama and tell a story in a way that is harder for us to do in the games? And on top of that, give our, our fans who have played the game either in the past or currently a different way of experiencing Halo than they get uh, in the narrative experience of the game. And and so, I mean, how long have you been working on the on the TV series? Because I imagine you know, <laughs> as, as soon as as soon as something's a hit on a on a video game, you you always see the reports of a TV series or a film in the works. How long have you yeah. been working on Halo the TV series? Well, I mean, I think the phenomena that you just spoke about is pretty recent, right? Mm-hmm. You know, when a game is successful, Hollywood comes knocking on the door. They weren't knocking for a really long time. <laughs> uh, is, is that because but, of the the mixed history, perhaps, of, of video game adaptations that we saw um, maybe 20 or 30 years ago that maybe some of them just didn't really work and then maybe Hollywood called a little bit as well, something happened to re- reignite that interest? I mean, I think that for a while there was a perception that the mediums were so different that I think it took a while for a lot of people in Hollywood to understand sort of the depth of narrative and mythos that exist in a lot of video games. And also the kind of attachment that players can have to game IPs because of the level of immersion they experience when they're playing a game. And so I think those were things that unless somebody happened to be sort of an avid gamer and also working in Hollywood, I think it took a little while for the industry to recognize that. At the same time, you know, it's really tricky to go from such an immersive medium where you have so much player agency and so much of the story is really co-owned by the player to then take it into a medium where it's very authored and you're asking the viewer to sort of sit back instead of lean in and participate. And so that I think what felt like maybe easier to translate when you actually start to get into the practice of it, it's really creatively complex 
complex to navigate. And so back to your original question of how long it took, almost as long as answering that question. Um, <laughs> um, you know, we started thinking about, as I said, we wanted to explore, this is coming out of Halo 4 back in 2012. We wanted to really have the time to, to explore the Master Chief and explore John inside the armor in a very character first dramatic way from a perspective you can't experience in the games. And right. so that's that's when we're, you know, when it was clear, you know, TV is the way to do that because rather than having two hours, we have a much longer span of time to really do some character development. And so, you know, that was back in 2012. I think, you know, we we signed on with Amblin and Steven Spielberg not too long after that and then with Showtime. And so there's this long period up until I would say probably 2018 when we had sort of done these deals and we were talking about what we wanted to do. And it probably wasn't until 18, 19 that we got the right creative team together, to be honest. And then, you know, our prep and production was a little bit longer than than normal. We, we for sure got hit by, you know, the pandemic and pandemic delays. So we uh, we finished shooting in, well, about a year, actually almost a year ago, um, season one. Yeah. Right. I mean, just for people who, who aren't familiar with the, the property, I mean, how would you describe Halo and, and the story? You know, can you tell us a bit of the story of season one? Yeah. I mean, I so I will say Halo All Up is, it's a 26th century story about, you know, the fight for humanity to survive against an existential alien threat over the 20 years that stories evolved quite a bit so I'll, I'll generalize it a little bit but really it's focused on the master chief and these spartan super soldiers and really sort of embraces some very core beliefs in kind of all the stories we tell there are these sort of epic sci-fi stories but at the heart of each of them is a more intimate story about humanity about heroism i would say that's probably the strongest thread through all that we do heroism and and what it means to be a hero about hope. It can be a dark story with humanity at threat, but hope is a, a huge part of it. And then sort of the wonder of sci-fi. And so the television series explores all of those things and goes goes back a little bit to the origin story of the Spartans. And I, I don't want to give away too much about that, but it is about the Master Chief who's sort of the best of them all. And, you know, him exploring sort of who he is as a person. You know, these, these soldiers have been trained since they were children to be very single-mindedly sort of human weapons. And what does it mean as he starts to discover a little bit of his own humanity and, and in doing so sort of understand what he's fighting for and what he's what he's saving? Can you tell us a bit about, I guess, the, the creative team you've worked with to bring the story to the screen and, and what were those early discussions about? You mentioned 20 years of IP and and you don't want to go back to the beginning, I guess, of, of that first game necessarily and, and just adapt the game. But what were those discussions you had about the story in particular and, and where it would take you, you know, potentially for further seasons? Yeah, I mean, we started really with what was for to be able to express because that was going to be a through line through every season, however many seasons there are. And the that was those core beliefs of hope and heroism and humanity and wonder. We knew that we obviously wanted to focus on the Master Chief and learning more about who John is, you know, the man inside the helmet that we don't experience as much in the games. Most of our time is spent very solely with the Master Chief. So that was the starting point. And then it kind of, it became the, it came very much a discussion of what is that catalyst for the Master Chief to, to understand and to recognize the, the John who he is inside. And then 
we always will look at what are beloved parts of the universe and the Master Chief and Cortana are, are key elements. And in, interestingly, in the games, Cortana very much is sort of the human side of Chief. So we get to explore their relationship and their dynamic a little bit differently. Dr. Halsey, who, who created the Spartan program and has always had this sort of mother-like figure, the John Cortana Halsey triangle has always been an interesting dynamic. And so these are all things that we knew at their very core were important parts of our universe and our storytelling. So it really focused very much on how do we surface those things in a way that feels good and that also, again, suits the medium. Well, and and as you know, you, you know the, the franchise so well, I mean, how involved were you at all stages of, of the production? Because I imagine it's not just the story, but it's the look, it's the costumes, it's the world that you're, mm-hmm. you want to set the story and how involved were you to make sure that it would be what fans, I guess, would expect of, of a TV show of Halo? I mean, I was very involved. I also have a team who is very involved. For me, I look at my role as how do we help create as great a show as we can, right? Because there's a Halo-ness of it, then there's also just a great TV drama. And then there's, I think, a lot about those very high level, like what feels Halo, right? How does the story feel Halo? What are the important elements? And then Extraordinary Franchise Team and one of our senior writers, Kenneth Peters, I have him here on set with us the whole time to go through all the canon details because one of the big pieces of season one in particular and will continue in season two is the world building Mm -hmm. and so those visual details regardless of whether you're a fan or not building that believable world and if you know the hope is to bring new people into halo sort of defining what that world is is super important and then for fans how do we give them the things that they expect and then how do we also delight them with with things they may not expect you know sort of the sights and sounds of the game itself and then how do we give them things that are completely new and you know i would say on the completely new front um some fans really love and appreciate those things and some fans don't and you know that's not unexpected and you know i have so much love for all of our fans and you know some fans like being able to experience uh the story differently and other fans really want very strict adherence to core canon um and again that's perfectly understandable and there are other experiences that deliver on that this yeah. one's a little bit different so is, is there a fine line do you think between meeting what the fans would expect perhaps and, and as you said making a tv drama because you don't want yeah. just the fans of the sh- of the game to watch the show i imagine so how do you ensure it, you know it, it, you, can you please everyone I, I guess like you said <laughs> maybe you can't <laughs> no there's definitely no pleasing everyone but i think the most that you can hope for is for fans who don't agree with the decisions that you make that they at least can respect that there was good intent and logic behind it, even if they don't necessarily agree with the creative decision. I think that's one of the hard things is you go into something like this and you have to understand and expect that, you know, there will be some number of fans who aren't going to like it. And that's tough, especially because you see how much people put into it. But that said, that's where, again, with the transmedia approach, we have the opportunity to do things that do focus more on a very core audience. And so part of it is having the stomach or, you know, some of the fan feedback, which isn't as positive, but also knowing that, you know, hopefully you've brought on both new audience and also people who, you know, were diehard Halo fans and maybe 
maybe through lifestyle changes, they just don't play as much anymore. And I think the thing that's been most gratifying for me in terms of looking across the fandom and the impact of the show is how many fans have come and said, I loved that I could share this with, you know, person X, Y, or Z in my life who never understood why I loved Halo so much. And now they sit and they watch the show with me and we can enjoy it together. And that's incredibly gratifying. You're, you're now in Budapest, uh, you know, preparing for season two to, to film there. What, what are some of the lessons maybe you've learned from making <laughs> season one that you have now carried into season two coming from a, a non-traditional TV background, I guess? So many lessons, like <laughs> genuinely so many lessons across every, every axis, honestly. I think it's a very organic balance between, you know, how much you try and push sort of IP elements in where maybe they don't fit and finding the right way to get them in. And there's also like building the kind of relationships where you can really collaborate in a way that lets, you know, the showrunner have their voice and tell their story. And at the same time, being able to bring in what's important for Halo and having them embrace them telling a Halo story, not putting a wrapper of Halo-ness around a story that they already have in their head. I feel like that's a, a tricky balance that you kind of have to get through to figure out. You know, I think one thing that was really successful for us on season one and, and we'll continue to do is we did a lot of Halo boot camps, right? Where we really, you know, at every level of the crew gave everyone sort of a, an understanding of what Halo means, you know, to fans. What are all the elements, you know, basically a way to get the crew sort of invested in the IP, right? Because you have such talented, passionate people coming together to make a show. And I think that really helped to get everyone pointed in the same direction and also, again, feel that investment to Halo fans and to expressing Halo to new people. And you've got a, a new showrunner, I gather, for season two as yeah. well. So what can you tell us about just coming in with a new creative mind who's fresh to the, the show and, and what, what's in store, perhaps? Can you What can you tell us? Yeah. So David Wiener is our new showrunner. So excited to have him on board. And, you know, I think he will bring a creative perspective to the show that, you know, will definitely sort of continue on from season one, but I think also give it, you know, we were so ambitious with season one and just the creating and production of it was hugely ambitious. And we were trying to figure out how do you make a Halo show, right? And I think now coming into season two, we kind of know how to make a Halo show when it comes to delivering on the scope and the scale and frankly, understanding how hard it is every day that everyone signed up again. And I think with David, what we have is a really focused creative perspective and I think we'll feel something that that will bring a lot of sort of visceral intensity to the story and and yeah speaking of the visuals then I mean um, I'm always interested to know just what it's like on a on set of a show like this is it very practical effects and, and lots of costumes and makeup or are people walking around in those green costumes and, and talking to tennis balls on sticks tell us about what it's like on yeah. a day on the shoot yeah I feel like we kind of turn it up to 11 on all fronts so <laughs> everything you said we have all of. I mean, it is an extraordinary set to be on. We have seven sound stages here in Budapest. We shoot on location, extraordinary costumes, amazing special effects. Our pyro is my favorite part. Um, so we do, we try and do as much practically as we can, but at the same time, we're also very VFX heavy, not just for um, the Covenant, which is a place where we um, have a lot of gray suited actors on stilts with uh, tall eye lines, but also to capture some of those 
really, you know, if you remember from season one, sort of that shot of high charity or coming into the rubble, those those really sort of fantastic sci-fi moments. So we kind of have all of those things and a lot of it. <laughs> well, what's the biggest challenge, you know, as, a, as an EP? What's what keeps you up at night? Oh, so many things. I think it's I will say it's kind of very halo for us to always be very ambitious. And so I think there's just the, the practical stress of making the day and more importantly, making the day at the level of story and visual quality that I think is really important to our brand. I think one of the things that I do spend a lot of time thinking about engaging on is just crew dynamics. I think this is probably coming from my background as a game developer and leading game teams, you know, how department heads get together and get on together and just sort of crew health. Those are things that I care very much about and the culture of the crew and what the culture of the set feels like, because that's so critical to healthy game development. I think about those pieces a lot. And, you know, when you have a thousand person family working 10, 12 hours a day, things can get crunchy. And and that's something that um, I take really seriously is the functioning of the crew. Absolutely. And just, you know, we've seen Halo obviously came out early this year. Resident Evil launched on Netflix recently. There are more games coming to TV later this year. I mean, mm-hmm. is this a, a purple patch we're going through of, of video games coming back as a, a chief source of IP or or what's behind this trend and, and do you see it kind of continuing? I mean, I think I think we're definitely seeing a, a heyday, right? Mm. What I what I think we'll see is, you know, we'll maybe start to see volume come down a little bit. Because I think right now it's let's take every kind of game and and give it a try. I think as people get into it, I think we'll start to get back to what are the right kinds of games. And there's so many, right? There's so many. So I think adapting games is for sure here to stay. And for me, I actually love seeing all these different adaptations because each of us has our own unique problem or or challenge to solve in adapting and everyone's taking their own approach. And to me, that just is such an interesting, interesting creative process. And I also love games and I love TV and movies. So for me, it's just more great content. Kiki Wolfkill speaking with Michael Pickard. Canada-headquartered producer-distributor Cineflix Media has recently unveiled partnerships with Adrienne Mitchell's Bentframe Film and TV and Morwin Brebner's Husk Media, with more details expected in the coming months. According to company president Peter Emerson, the ultimate goal is to drive more rights into its UK-based distribution business Cineflix Rights and offer creatives a more meaningful ownership stake in their work. Emerson spoke to Jordan Pinto about growing Cineflix's scripted business through new partnerships, getting its tyres kicked all the time as a potential acquisition target, and the prospect of a new wave of consolidation in the Canadian market. So at the end of March, um, Cineflix announced that it would be acquiring the Canadian production company Back Alley Film Productions, um, which was led for a long time by Adrian Mitchell and Janice Lundman who both departed the company and Adrian subsequently set up a new production company, Bentframe Film and TV, which Cineflix partnered with. Um, so I, anyway, I thought it'd be a good time to maybe check in on where things lie with the, uh, the Cineflix media scripted strategy. Um, and so may, maybe first I'll ask about how the, how the deal with Back Alley Film came together and what the reasons were for that, uh, for that deal. Yeah, for sure. Um, it was, it was, uh, I, I think Back Alley is 30 years old, uh, but the, that tr- the transaction was only 20 years in the making. Um, I've had a long relationship with, uh, with Janice and Adrian. 
many, many productions that uh, we've co-produced or, or distributed on um, through going back to Oasis International Days, through my affiliation with, uh, with E1, straight through to, to Cineflex. Um, we've had a, I've had an ongoing relationship with them and uh, the most recent uh, successful venture in that was Corner which is is uh, based on the Matt Hall books, uh, a Brit. And uh, we uh, we formatted those for television and uh, and came up with the, with the Jenny Cooper story that was his character that he had created and and produced four seasons of that for the for the CBC. Uh, the most recent one just finished its run. And we wanted to continue that saga continue the the coroner story so it uh, and we wanted to continue the relationship with um, with adrian uh, janice has retired uh, but adrian's gone on to um, as you mentioned uh, to start her new company bent frame and so it was a two-step where we we acquired the assets of back alley um we'll we will continue to exploit the ip there where we can but otherwise not keep uh back alley going as a as a concern we're sort of just going to absorb it into into cineflex whereas bent frame adrian's new shingle that is that will be a going concern and she will continue to develop new properties and uh to be the force of uh, <laughs> the force of nature that she is um we we're we're uh we'll, we'll, we'll sure we'll see continued success from from adrian and uh, we will continue to uh probably act as studio on on her her projects deficit finance certainly distribute possibly co yeah probably co-produce um really be the overall facility for those projects that she brings forward because I she's not building a big infrastructure over there small development team and um we don't we don't expect her to uh to build too big of a of a company over there but a, a boutique she wants to run a, a tight boutique very creative focus on her directing and show running so you can only do so many projects when you when you approach it that way she's very hands-on um, let's talk a bit about the the broader scripted strategy for Cineflex Media. Obviously, you have the the stuff that or the, the new stuff with Bent Frame. I know was it was it earlier this year or la- late last year? You launched Husk Media um, in partnership right. with, yeah. with with Morwin Brebner. Yeah, and and it's a it's a similar sort of story where again long relationship with with uh, Morgan a uh, Morwin Brebner. We had we did Rookie Blue with her years ago. She was the uh, um, the creator and on that one of the creators on that and 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 show ran a number of seasons writer she uh then went on to do um saving hope uh which we also did that was at e1 and then corner which was uh, the center she was part of that the the corner creation team and and showrunner for writer for many seasons uh, the first three seasons. And so it was really uh, supporting her, which is, you know, to take a step back, a, a big part of the of the Cineflix uh, scripted strategy, which is, um, you know, in today's market, really, you really got to be closer to the talent, um, to the creators, to uh, to the showrunners, to the writers, and and that's what we're doing. So that's why we're supporting people like Adrian, like Morwen, and so we financed the setup of uh, of Husk, 
which is her new, which is Mormon Rebner's new company with Andrew Ackman. And Andrew was actually an employee. He was, he was COO of, um, of Cineflex. And uh, it was really what better person to sort of partner with her, sort of um, the head and the heart. Um, you know, she is the creative engine behind it, but he's a, uh, He's a he's a great strategist and and a hardworking you know executive. We we we're we're predicting great things for uh, for Husk Media, and they've got a they've got a wonderful slate put together in the first six months of their operation, and um, we'll see what happens. So again, we will we will act as uh, you know financing and distribution partner on that, and we're a partner in in Husk Media, but. Uh, pretty hands off as far as the development is concerned they 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 bounce things off us but uh they really run their own show over there and uh, and and we count on them doing that on the on the scripted side in the canadian market have have you done partnerships like this with kind of newly launching companies in the past because i was trying to rack my brains and and think whether yeah, whether on the scripted side, you this to me feels a bit more like some things we'd see very commonly in the UK and the US yeah you don't see it yeah, as so often we, on the canadian market yeah and in some ways, I mean, it's yeah. We so so Buccaneer. We we um, we have a joint venture out of the UK with Tony Wood, and now Richard Talcart has has joined that. And uh, you know, we finance the the growth and the well the the upstart and the growth of, of of Buccaneer. So it is a it is a model we look at. That one is slightly different in that it's although Tony is a creative producer, he's not a pure creative he's not a he's not a writer per se he's not a showrunner he's not, no it's it's a slightly different uh, approach but equally you know tony has that direct conduit to talent so that's why we you know that's why we liked him that's why we bet on that one and he's he's built a, an amazing slate of of well not just a development slate but now in production on on Whitstable, pearl and and the crime for ITV and and three seasons of Marcella, and so it's all really starting to uh, to gel over there at at Buccaneer. So yeah, it is. You might say it's picking up off of that that sort of UK model. In the past, certainly at E1, we did more producer driven deals. So you'd be doing first looks and whatnot with with production companies. But I think it's just an evolution of that model where now you just need to be getting a little closer to the to the talent than than being once removed and dealing with the producers who have those relationships <laughs> with the talent. So it's it's not totally dissimilar, but it I would say it's it's an evolution of that same business model. Do you think we could see this perhaps more going forward in the Canadian market? I'm trying to think of other deals. Um, I know, uh, like uh, John Rainer says, Blink Blink Studios has. It's more like a first look with Sherry oh, Elwood. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. No, I didn't. I didn't create this model. <laughs> no, <laughs> definitely. I think you'll. Yeah, I think you will see Blink following that trajectory as well. And for you guys, do you think these kind of production company um, partnerships? is something we might see in the future or did these two with Morwin and Adrian Mitchell, did they just kind of, Oh no, no, no. Yeah. There's, there's check in with me in a month. There's another, (laughs) there's another couple that we're working on. I really can't say, but uh, yeah, this is, this is, uh, you know, we, we don't, we, we we see this as being a smarter way of building it out rather than you know just having a massive development department. I, we think we you know this is this is this is a 
more effective way of of building out a studio like to what we're what we're really trying to do is is drive rights into into Cineflix rights right like it's it's really about retaining rights and uh, and and building and building Cineflix rights it's not it's not about building a production entity but that that is an important part of it obviously you have to have a seat at that table but it's 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 a distrib- it's more of a studio distribution play than it is a production play so yes you will well you'll see more of these sort of pod deals if you will where we're nurturing talent but also nurturing and and supporting creative producers like like Tony Wood so there's another deal we're working on where it's where it's more of that sort of person who has very strong talent relationships and and uh, we would we support that and to be able to sort of ring fence rights if you will rather than bidding on the open market when these things come available after they're commissioned and all there is you know there's a deficit left to talk about or it never gets to that conversation because the they, the, the world rights could be snapped up by a, a streamer so you're in a very different marketplace than you were five years ago where where these rights they're not even coming to distributors. They're, the conversation is ending between, you know, the creators and the platforms. They, they you know, it, there's there's no rights to talk about. So we got to get in. We have to be in these conversations early. We have to be supporting uh, the creatives at ideation um, even before scripts are written. Whether we're paying for those scripts or just for pitches to go into uh, broadcast traditional broadcasters or platforms, we have to be in those conversations early, um, or we're or we're or we'll be locked out. Or and if we're not locked out, we will overpay for the rights um, if they come available at the end. It'll just be a competitive bidding, and uh, that that gets really nasty. That gets really expensive, and we're rarely ever. The biggest wallet, you know, we, we're not, we're, we're probably going to lose in an auction because it's just not the game we're playing. We will lose to the bigger players in that in that situation. We're still, I mean, we're doing well, but we're still a boutique operation, um, which I think is attractive to uh, creatives. If I were creative, I would rather be in a, uh, I'd be talking to the principals and be in a, you know, a boutique operation than than a than a uh, a number in a studio, a, a large studio like a proper Hollywood studio. But uh, that's um, hard. Yeah, and you'll have more ownership at the end. The other the other thing we can offer creatives is uh, a meaningful uh, back end, a meaningful ownership stake in their um, in their work. Yeah, I just think it's it's really interesting, like. Do you think you would have been doing these kind of partnerships two, two years ago, or was the market different? To, say maybe just let's think. Uh, say just yeah, it became, I think it became. I think it became apparent more than that, like five, six years ago, that this is where you needed to be. So yeah, two years ago for sure. Ten years ago, no. Two years, ten years ago, you didn't need to. But it, I think it became pretty obvious five or six years ago that you needed to be you know, in the conversation much sooner and taking, you know, paying for, paying for a script 10 years ago seemed dumb. Now it seems obvious <laughs> where that changed, where the inflection point was. I don't really know five, six years ago. Do you consider yourself as an independent studio? Do you think of yourself as a production group with a distribution arm? Like, uh, no, indep- independent studio. And, and you know, it depends who you ask in, in Cineflex. We may not all be perfectly aligned on that. Some of us are more production-oriented and others are distribution-oriented. Um, but we're, we're a studio. 
so I mean, where I sit in that, I'm, I'm always thinking about Cineflex rights and how to drive rights. And that doesn't mean getting the rights to every single show, not in this market. It means it means knowing what the value of those rights are so that when you're in a conversation with a streamer, you're not selling what you've got for the deficit. You know, it's not it's not about just getting the show made. It's about realizing the value of that show. And and so us being in a conversation with Netflix or Amazon is very different than a pure play producer being in that conversation because the producers just trying to get their show made. Whereas we have options. We could say, no, we're not going to do that deal because we really want something to sell at the end of the day to our linear broadcasters, our cable broadcasters, our, our free TV guys. You know, we, 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 we want to retain rights. So we will cover the deficit on this. Thank you for your generous offer. But for, that, for us to sell it to a, a platform like that, um, they really have to blow us away. Like you take uh, take Tehran for example. You know, it was when it started. It was a smaller show that we uh, we picked up out of Israel. Um, Moshe Zander was right. I mean, it had it had the great auspices coming off of of Fauda. It was an obvious thing to do, but it was low budget. And right out of the gate, we had the platforms knocking on our door. But it, the proposition was, we'll pay for the show. I was like, well, no, it's a, it's a, it's a low budget show. That's not, that's not what we're doing here. We're trying to bring a great show to market, and we want to be able to sell it market by market. And we said, no, 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 a thousand times. And then finally, Apple came in and just said, okay, here's, here's what we're willing to do. I was like, okay, we can do that. Uh, you know, it was, it was a different conversation. So it's about, it's about knowing the value of what, of what you're sitting on, and. Um, and so it's not that we won't sell to the plot. Of course we will. You'd be crazy not to. But it's not. It's about not just getting the show made. So now, now that Apple's on board, the second season was made with Glenn Close, and and uh, it's five times the budget of the original, six times the budget of the original of the original show. It was just a better way of doing it. And so, you know, it's just an example of approaching things from that studio perspective rather than the just the indie producer, um, particularly out of Canada, where you're really typically just trying to just trying to get the show made and drive drive the sort of best producer fee or premium that you can get from that. We we really don't think that way. We really don't think about the upfront money at all. Just you mentioning Israel there's got, got me thinking. Um, obviously you have very strong, well, you have the, the, the base in Canada, some uh, like a lot of partnerships in the US and the UK. Um, mm -hmm. Would you be looking at f further afield than some of those markets? Is, is it like, might you be? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're digging in all the, the same places as our competitors. You know, we still, Scandi, Scandinavia is still hot. Buccaneer is very, is very close to announcing a few things, uh, you know, uh, there's uh, so long, Marianne. I think there's been some news on on recently the the Leonard Cohn biopic. There's there's one out of Iceland. Um, we're very active in Quebec, um, in in French Canada. We see that as a real hotbed of creativity. That that's that's our home territory. So we're we're very active there. Israel, you know, we it wasn't just Tehran. We then picked up uh, Manayek. Um, which which has done very well for us. That was more of a straight acquisition. We weren't 
they weren't so involved in in the production of that one. Australia picking up shows out of out of Australia, Canada. You know what we're what we're not doing so much is is developing into the U.S. market. That's better left to deeper pockets. <laughs> you know. That's a game that we're, we're, of course, selling into the U.S., but not not developing for you know for the cable networks and or the or the broadcast networks, but still selling into them for sure. Um, Coroner was on was on CW. We just finished shooting the first season of Reginald the Vampire um, with uh, with Jacob Batalon uh, out in Vancouver, and that one was for Sci-Fi. So we're we're in those conversations, but it's not the focus of of our development and our partnerships to be, we're not really in the pilot business, you know, per se, but uh, we can compete in, in genre, for example, something like something like Reginald the Vampire. Um, last couple from me, Peter, and I'll, I'll wrap it up. Um, I, I'd be really interested to get your thoughts just more broadly on the production landscape in Canada at the moment. Um, I feel like historically, I remember maybe like five years before the pandemic, um, there was kind of pretty rapid consolidation with the likes of E1, Boat Rocker, uh, Q Media and Sphere Media. That's definitely kind of yeah. cooled off, cooled off in the last two or two and a half years. Obviously, partly because of the onset of the pandemic, and because I think some of the business models uh, for those production groups has changed. But I'd be interested just to to get, and this is a very broad question, but I'd be interested to get your broad thoughts on, I suppose, the the layout and the the landscape of the uh, Canadian production sector at the moment. Um, well, it's it's vibrant. I mean, it's never been better as far as you know the uh, the orders coming and not they're not coming from canada the, the we're struggling here in canada but you know Cineflex, c1 you know boat rocker sphere these are all international companies right and uh th- there's never been more opportunity so there will be more consolidation i think uh, i think we all had to you know, when when things like Q Media melt down, you got to take a step back, and and uh, you know, you you pushing the M and A buttons in that environment are a little tougher. But uh, you know, these are strong companies, and and I think you will see more consolidation going forward. But you know, you know, E One is Hasbro now, and and uh, Boat Rocker just did a, a a refinancing, you know, less than a year ago. Uh, Sphere is going to continue to grow. Cineflix is going to continue to grow. These have to be interesting um, entities to to foreign companies. I, I know they are. Um, we're getting our tires kicked all the time. So yeah, you're going to see you're going you're going to see more of that. As far as the grassroots stuff, it's tough. I think you have to be part of a a bigger organization now because the opportunities in Canada are slim. So those days of just getting orders, getting orders out of Canada, it still exists, of course, but it's it's not what it was. So you, you really have to be looking outside of, of Canada to 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 grow a business. So that that might be what you're seeing as, as far as it stalling. Um, but uh, the, the medium sized companies, yeah, I think they'll be will continue to see some consolidation. Yeah, so you you mentioned there. Well, two, I'm putting two things together here. You said that you think there'll probably be more consolidation going forward, and that um, Cineflix is having its tires kicked all the time. Um, do, do you think we're we might be entering a, a new phase of like quite active M and A maneuvers? I think globally, yes. Yeah, you know the markets. There's a lot of money out there, and there's a you know it's not even just the bigger companies looking to buy the medium sized companies, but there's a lot of private money out there. 
that's looking to take advantage of, you know, if, if for companies that have libraries and are seeing a big kick, a big uptick in their digital revenues, uh, be it SVOD or, or the emerging AVOD stuff. Um, we can't even say emerging anymore. I mean, the money in AVOD in the US is is eye-watering. Um, so private money is seeing this as well. And and they're going, wow, maybe we should, maybe we should be in the content business. So you're getting you're getting calls from from people that you don't even know, <laughs> you know, money people, um, because they they see the revenue streams. Now, maybe a bit of a setback with uh, subscribers leveling off in 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 Netflix, but I don't think that's a trend. Uh, maybe it is for Netflix, but it it it's uh, it's you know, Avod's got a long way to run. And uh, so we're gonna we're gonna see a lot of a lot of activity there and a, a lot of M and A activity driven by that, these new revenue streams, you know, content providers have always had a number of, you know, middlemen between them and the money. <laughs> you know, there's always been a, a broadcast network and and the, the advertising base, and they've never had, they've always just taken license fees or, you know, commissions for their, for their bread and butter. But now we have a route directly to the revenue source. To the subscribers, to the to to the AVOD money, and and if you if you own and control content, it's it's a very interesting time. Peter Emerson speaking with Jordan Pinto. My daughter's killer is the story of Frenchman Andre Bamberski's decades-long pursuit of justice for his 14-year-old daughter Kalinka, who died at the hand of a revered German medical doctor who also happened to be her stepfather. Suspicious autopsy results prompted Bamberski to push German authorities to investigate the former physician, but when these efforts proved fruitless and extradition to France was denied, Kalinka's father took matters into his own hands. The film, directed by Antoine Tassin, debuted on Netflix earlier this month and executive producer James Rogan, creative director of Rogan Productions, spoke to Clive Whittingham about the documentary – how the producers went about gaining access to the protagonists and the evolution of the true crime genre. So my name is James Rogan. I am the creative director of Rogan Productions and the executive producer of My Daughter's Killer. Watched My Daughter's Killer this morning, a trendy true crime genre. Excellent documentary, great project. Congratulations on, on how it's turned out. For people that haven't seen it, can you give them the skinny? Yes, it follows the story of... A father, Andre Bumberski, who spends 30 years trying to get justice for his daughter, Kalinka, who he believes was killed by her stepfather, a respected German medical doctor, Dieter Kronbach. And eventually, when all other means are frustrated, he decides to kidnap the doctor to bring him to justice in France, where he faces a trial. How did you guys come to the story, first of all? Talk about the, the sort of origins of the, of the documentary for us, if you would. We had developed another story set in France and we were looking at some French stories and we were having a lot of conversations with Netflix at the time and we came across this one and it just had such an extraordinary just quality to it it sort of posed a question that all parents ask themselves you know how far would they go to get justice 
for their child. And so we um, we started to develop it and the producer, Vice Bottomman, reached out to Andre Bumbersky to see whether he'd be interested in participating. And after months of conversations, we were able to proceed. Can you talk a little bit about how you go about getting the access to everybody in this doc? Because you've got, you've obviously got defence and prosecution lawyers on both sides. You've got, like you say, the, the father who's the central protagonist, but also uh, the kidnapper, which I put in quotation marks because the audience can reach their own conclusion on whether that was the, the right thing to do. But you've you managed to get to all the main players, apart from obviously the accused who's who's passed away. How do you go about securing access to all of those people? Because that, that sort of the project hangs on that, really, doesn't it? Yes. Well, we've got a track record in making films with challenging access. And this year we, we made Uprising, a three-part series about the New Cross Fire and Brixton riots. And uh, we also made Freddie Mercury, the final act with the Queen. And actually every conversation is a challenging conversation when it comes to access. And above all, when somebody is is still in the grip of a trauma, which is the, you know, in this case was for Andre Bumbersky was the loss of his daughter. But you find that there are still so many questions on all sides. If you approach with sensitivity and lay out a reason for talking, people tend to step forward and, and actually participate. I mean, track record is probably the, the obvious answer to this, but I presume given a story as extraordinary as this, and they have to be extraordinary stories, to, to reach Netflix and, and platforms like that. I guess these people have been approached many times by many producers, probably many French producers as, as well, to tell their story. How do you set your company apart and make them go with you as opposed to the many other approaches that I'm presuming that they've had? Well, Andre Bumbersky had told the story many times before. He had written a book. There's a quite a well-known movie about it in France starring Daniel Latoy playing him. And there had been a number of current affairs style documentaries, some of which appear in the film that had been made in relation to his story. So in some ways, he, you know, he, he felt himself to be something of an, an old hand. He wondered what we would do that was different. And the answer to that is always uh, is the same, which is that we put the perspectives and the experience of the people who are at the heart of the story center stage in the filmmaking process. And it leads to a completely different kind of film. So it's it's no longer a documentary guided by a journalist who is, you know, filming 30 minute interviews with sort of key players and throwing it together with a voiceover. And it's not a fictionalization. So as soon as people like Andre Bobersky realize that, 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 that actually this is a chance to tell their story without mediation, either of actors or of commentators, it becomes a very different kind of piece. And, and that's generally what brings people to us because they watch our other films and they realize that there is a sort of a, a direct experiential level to which the storytelling can reach, which is unlike any other form. Yeah, yeah. It looks like a Netflix documentary as soon as, as, soon as you put it on. As soon as I put it on this morning, I was like, oh, okay. Mm. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sitting down. I know what I'm, I'm here for. It, it looks like I say, like a Netflix documentary. Was it always going to Netflix? Can you tell us a little bit about the sort of pitch and, and how it ended up there? Yes, we always thought that we would we would work with Netflix on it. Yes, from, from the beginning. And we had conversations from the very beginning of the project with them about it. And we had been looking for a project to do together. I had made films with Kate Townsend and, and Johnny Taylor back 
in the days of Storyville when she was there. And I really uh, admire what they've achieved with their storytelling and the way they've elevated the storytelling in, in their films. Their attention to detail and the craft of storytelling is extraordinary. When you've got a story like this that's an extraordinary story with, with action sequences in it, there's a there's a, a kidnapping, like you say, there's a, there's a couple of trials um, in this. Uh, there's obviously some barbaric acts at, at the start, but you haven't got, you've got very little uh, archive and obviously you get, you've got a lot of talking heads, but not a lot to fill that out. How do you go about making it as compelling and fast? And, you know, I couldn't take my eyes off it, but I, I realised at the end, there's a, it's a lot of talking heads and, the, the you know, not a lot of, of action and yet it feels quite action driven. So I just wonder how you go mm. about making a fast paced documentary that, that keeps the viewer sort of ticking along like that when, like I say, you're not blessed with a lot of archive. Um, so there are, there are probably a few answers to that that question. You know, we were making this in the thick of COVID. And so it was extremely challenging just filming across multiple borders and accessing archives, you know, in the time of sort of, you know, working from home. It was always the intention to make it a thriller. And we always knew that the story was was exceptional in how it develops. And so the, the first point to kind of drive the pace is, is really the, the storytelling is landing in the middle of the action. There's very little time spent on context. It's very character driven. So you feel that you're in Bambersky's world. It is directed from his perspective and the perspective of the other contributors. So you have that kind of that satisfaction of sort of being, if you like, in the passenger seat, watching them as they sort of navigate towards the conclusion of the story. And all of that was bound to kind of deliver a sense of, of action. And also you you use the introductions of the characters to kind of heighten the pace. So so the arrival of one of the survivors to tell her experience as, as you sort of come out of the first act into the second act or the the intervention of Anton who who goes on to abduct Dr. Crombach you know that it's it's all in the storytelling and what was what's remarkable about working with Netflix was was the kind of the focus the very sharp focus on on the storytelling and making the storytelling really kind of convey that sense of urgency even in a story that, that obviously takes place over 30 years and the director Antoine Tassin uh, it's a mixture of the direction and the editing and the score which was done by West Thorsten who did the jinx and those elements all come together when you said that a lot of it was pretty- produced during COVID. Were you filming and interviewing in the room or is some of that over Zoom? No, uh, it was all done in the room. It was done in the breaks between gosh you know i can't remember exactly when when it fell but we were still certainly you know the team had to quarantine when they went from france to germany and obviously there are enormous amount of covid protocols to film safely and the challenge with that of course is that you're trying to to create a setting where people can be comfortable and open and candid but also you're wearing masks and all the paraphernalia that comes with COVID protocols. So it was, a, it was an extraordinary time to make a documentary and and very challenging. Mm. You can't you you can't tell. Um. So so that that's good. And the other the other guy that you mentioned there was Anton. Obviously a great character. Great great introduction into this documentary. Sort of two thirds of the way through. Was he difficult to persuade to go on camera and talk? Given that he's basically admitting to knowing Georgian gangsters and carrying out this this kidnapping, but yeah, he's quite proud of what he's done. So was it easy or hard to sort of find him and get him on camera? Anton. Was- was 
quite happy to talk. <laughs> yeah, I kind, I kind of get that impression. He could almost be the doc by himself. You could do it from from his mm, point of view. Yeah, I mean, when when you see Anton in the film, he's he's such a sort of extraordinary character, and his perspective on the world is so distinctive that it's it, it's quite remarkable. Quite a few of these Netflix projects are done three or four parts. You know, cliffhanger to get you to the next episode, binge yeah. thing in one night. Why did you guys go down the feature dot route as opposed to that? Well, it always felt like it was a really solid feature. It was sort of it's got that singularity of one man's journey, and even though the time span is massive, it's it's quite a singular story in the sense that Bambersky has to fight for decades on his own. And what we what we introduced was what you realised was that as he was fighting. There were a lot of women who were experiencing firsthand Dr. Crombat. And you realize that they, you know, there's a scene where a journalist interviews him and explains how he appears to mock his victim, even though he's been convicted of rape. And you realize that this extraordinary situation where where it's just not important enough. And there's this amazing news clip where there's, there's, there's 2,000 signatures trying to stop him from being a doctor locally and complaining about the kind of the brevity, you know, the lightness of his sentence. And you think, what a world that, that they're existing in at this point, that a doctor could abuse his power in that way and get away with it. And Bambersky, Bambersky is sort of on his own seeing that. So you have these two forces. You have the kind of the father, you know, who thinks something is wrong, but is told mostly that he's the problem. And you have, you know, victims and journalists who are sort of railing against what uh, this man is getting away with. And these, these two things collide. So it, seemed, it always seemed like an extraordinary feature film to us. True Crimes streamers love it. It works really well for them. People like me lap it up. It's moved in this stranger than fiction direction almost. Certainly on, on Netflix, it seems to have gone in a stranger than fiction direction. And that's this leans into that. But by their nature, those pro- those stories are few and far between, right? So I, I'm sure you want to do more of these. How difficult is it to sort of source the right stories? How do you go about that? How do you develop and, and find those stranger than fiction stories that support Feature Doc or Four Park for Netflix? It's immensely challenging to find the right stories to tell, both that are commissionable and also worth telling. And for us, Rogan Productions, for us, the sense of purpose is really important. And the resonance of the story is is really important. So finding stories that have these extraordinary events in them that illustrate also our everyday experiences. So I would say that this story is it sort of operates at a level beyond most, you know, most people's experience imagined or real, you know, but that feeling of wanting justice, the feeling of the loss of a loved one is is, is very relatable. You know, how, how does one find I mean it's interesting we, we were discussing that today. Uh, how do you find these stories? And um, it's it's very difficult because the bar has been set so high. And I think for us as Rogan Productions, the key thing is having a clear sense of purpose with the story. Yeah, I think that what was interesting about an American murder, the one that Netflix did, you know, was that you realized at the end of the story, it was it became clear this was about the violence men do to women so unthinkingly and so regularly. And so it had quite a it quite had quite a powerful punch at the end when the story deepened beyond the singular story of these characters that you'd been watching. And you realized this was an, also, as well as being an absolutely compelling 
uh, story. It was it was an illustration of just the kind of the, the horrors that of the experience that the women can have in marriages. And I think this one as well. You know, we we don't think so much of what we're doing as doing true crime or being in a sort of a genre territory. What we think we're doing is is finding extraordinary stories about humanity under enormous pressure and trying to tell them in a way that puts the experience of the people who live through the events at the center of the story. In the, one of the most amazing things about documentary in its present incarnation is because is the craft levels have reached a point where you are able to really sit down with and experience stories through the eyes of the people who have lived them. And that is a, a, an absolutely you know, mind-blowing thing when it's done right. And so you have this situation where you have the privilege of being with someone who is prepared to share the experience of having been on this incredibly difficult quest for justice, which had taken him deep into territories of moral uncertainty. And, you know, I think at the end of the film, it's a really moving testament to the contradictions of spending a lifetime fighting for justice and the return of that. James Rogan speaking with Clive Whittingham. That's all for this episode, but you can hear more discussion by tuning into our C21 FM internet radio station, where you'll find new interviews airing from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening. Yeah.